Hi, I'm Faye Soteri. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Calibre Podcast, brought to you by Watchers of Switzerland. We've got a really exciting episode today, and we're thrilled to talk about the history of Patek Philippe. Hello, uh, everyone. Uh, welcome to uh, the latest Watchers of Switzerland podcast. My name is Brian Duffy. I'm the CEO of the Watchers of Switzerland group, and, and delighted that you've uh, decided to join us and listen to our podcast uh, we're overall uh, we're, we're thrilled by your response to our podcasts. Um, uh, high number, high number of you listening in, and uh, we enjoy doing them. And delighted to uh, understand that you're all enjoying listening to them. We've had a wonderful uh, array of uh, of guests in the uh, in our previous podcasts, and today is no exception at all because I'm uh, joined by Nick Folks. Uh, Nick, uh, as I'm sure many of you know, a very well-known author and, uh, and journalist, um, specialising in many subjects, including art, history, fashion, and watches, of course. Um, the common theme I detect as I, as I look at uh, a lot of what uh, Nick has uh, written is a real interest in society, high society, the more exotic theatrical side of life, as well as a, a great understanding of, uh, of technical uh, products and so on, particularly in watches. Nick's a contributing editor to the FT How to Spend It, to Vanity Fair. He also contributes regularly to GQ, The Rake, and, uh, and many others. Uh, he's a graduate of Oxford University, uh, Hartford College, um, that I saw in research that alumni, a very impressive alumni overall, including Evelyn Wach, uh, Fiona Bruce, uh, soon to be the moderator on, uh, on Question, Question time, time, indeed, yes. Yeah, and I think she was of, of your generation. Uh, a year above uh, me and in the room next door. Okay. A friend of mine used to go to judo practice with her or something. Oh, right. She did some form of martial arts. Karate, yeah. I think it was. Oh, where to, where to go for Yona? And, uh, and Natasha Kaplinsky. Natasha well. Kaplinsky, I think, is far too young for me to have known. All right, but uh, wonderful alumni, wonderful company to have overall. Uh, and you, you've written and researched some uh, subjects really close to my heart, including uh, books on cigars. And you were a 2007 Havana Man of the Year uh, awarded by the Cuban government. I think they've run out of people by then to give it to at that point, because I, I think I'd been nominated six times before. I, oh, but, but you, you, finally, you finally got... I'm sure they were just teasing you in that, that previous... Uh, well, previous if I were years. a Hollywood actor, of course, those, those nominations would really count. Do you know what I mean? They, in, it, the great thing about America is that they, that they count nomination as winning already, do you know? Yes. For the, for the Academy Awards. And you know what? I would, too. Nominated six times as a Havana Man of the Year and then uh, actually winning it, I think, is quite an, quite an accolade. Well, you're uh, very kind, and I'm very grateful that... Um, you brought that up because it is a favourite topic of mine, cigars. We should be allowed to smoke while we're podcasting. Yes, well, I think I think we could probably arrange that. I've got a couple of Monte Cristo hidden away somewhere in uh, in my office. Um, so let, let's see. It's how quite we go. it's let's quite the life you lead, Brian, isn't it? Really, it's fantastic. And and I do very little work in between. Actually, it's I, I hope I, chatting I, with I, interesting I'd, I'd hate people. to think that you actually have to go into an office and pretend to sort of shuffle papers about and sit there with spreadsheets and computers and. Yes, and they even turn the computer on from time to time. Yes, yes, there, apparently there is a button that does that. Um, you also written one of my favourite hotels, the Carlisle Hotel, uh, yeah. up, uh, up, Upper East in uh, Madison. Uh, it was always too inconvenient for me to stay at the Carlisle. I did once or twice, but it is a wee bit out of the way. It is, and the lifts, I believe, pride themselves on being the slowest in Manhattan. All oh, right, because one thing that works in Manhattan is lifts. Eh? Air conditioning and, uh, and lifts really work, but maybe not at the color. No, the lifts work. They just move at a sort of uh, stately pace. Yeah, which you could say that of the Kalila in many ways. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I mean, the point of it is that it's slightly out of, out of reach. I mean, I don't go, I mean, the thing is, I don't really go to New York to immerse myself in the hustle, bustle, and hot dogness of it all. It's, yep. um, it's more, uh, yeah, it's a retreat for me. Yep, which the Kalil is perfectly. Also famously a, a retreat for, uh, for John Kennedy back in the day when he was enjoying New York life. Enjoying New York uh, life and female companionship as well. Uh, uh, allegedly. Allegedly. And, uh, yes, and I, actually interestingly in one of our earlier podcasts uh, that we did, A History of Rolex, we did talk about the... Uh, uh, the watch that was engraved um, to Jack, love Marilyn. Yes. I love always Marilyn. And uh, who knows, it may have been one of the watches that was carried, or one of the things that were carried in the, 
Um, the tunnels. The underground tunnels and so on. Well, funnily enough, talking of American presidents, I was at Omega on Thursday, and in their museum they have the watch that was supposed to be given to President Nixon, you know, the gold speedmaster in yes. 1969 to celebrate the moon landing. And um, I, uh, Nixon was one of my favorite presidents because he's quite controversial. And um, I just thought it's, it's so good to be able to connect these small mechanical objects with these great men. I mean, yep. I know with Rolex, and we're going to get on to Patek, so don't worry. Um, but with Rolex, I've seen in the archives, I have a letter from Martin Luther King saying, uh, I'm sorry I couldn't write sooner to thank you for the lovely watch, but I've been busy organizing a march down in Selma. Well, yep. it's true. Yep. It's, I mean, I, and I think that that's, you know, perfectly talks to what we have been talking a lot about, just how watches really represent moments in time and and their great stories and great historical events. I, I love the, the sort of distillations of human creativity, but also vessels for your emotions, your stories. Uh, I think the power of a watch is that we don't need it, but we still need it, if you know what I mean. The yes. stated function is largely irrelevant, and yet we can't do without them. Yes, because they're, they're great objects of, uh, of comfort and uh, emotional desire and so on. And um, we are, I mean, one other thing that you've written very relevantly to what we're going to go on and discuss is the authorised biography of uh, Patek Philippe, yep. published on uh, December 16th and to do with the 175th uh, anniversary. And, uh, I must say, uh, Nick, well, first of all, welcome. I haven't actually thank said you. welcome, so thank, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Um, I did know you before, the world of watches and obviously... In with the my, world of Ralph. Uh, the world of Ralph Lauren and, and fashion, so we've... Uh, uh, very happily come across one another quite a few times, but certainly much more recently in the in the world of watches. But I never knew you and your career in ladies' underwear. But that was uh, I could tell you about that. It, um, I, I made a big difference to ladies' underwear actually. But we probably alongside. Well, I don't the have tech, time for that really. We do probably you? don't have t- enough time for that some other time. Maybe when podcast we ha- twelve, maybe when we have those cigars and a drink, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll talk about my life in, in ladies' underwear. Um, but I must say, I do love how you write. Thank um, you. It's, uh, it's, it's very, it's lyrical, it's very entertaining, it's so descriptive. And I always enjoy reading uh, whatever you write, whatever the subject might be. So just, you know, what a, you've had such an extraordinary and, and I would imagine very enjoyable uh, career. Um, so how did you start, when and where did you start off in this wonderful direction of being such a great author and journalist? Uh, great author and journalist. Um, you're very kind, first of all, to, to use the adjective. Um, I was doing my wife's homework when she was at, she wasn't my wife then, but we were, <laughs> we were walking out holding hands together. And uh, she was at the London College of Fashion learning fashion journalism. And I started doing her homework for her and she started coming top of the class. So I thought I might as well do that instead of doing what I was doing, which I was in the wine trade <laughs> at the time. That's a, a, the perfect description. It's not so, a bad way into the business. I'd recommend it. So, yes, well, whatever finds you there, it, it clearly was somewhere that, uh, somewhere that you belong, fashion and everything that you've been writing on since. Um, so we are going to talk about Patek Philippe. Mm-hmm. I think everybody would uh, recognise Patek as, as the experts when it comes to horological... Uh, exquisite uh, pieces, such a wonderful brand and one that we're very proud to represent here in, uh, in Watches of Switzerland. So we're going to talk, uh, you've, you've written this wonderful book that, uh, that, that you have there, there before you. I think it, it is the perfect, um, I'd hardly call it a summary, it's quite, it's quite a tome, it's quite a detailed uh, presentation of this, uh, this amazing brand. What I must say about the book is it's heavier than it looks and it looks quite heavy, but it's at least two kilos heavier than you would expect it to be. Um, you say it's thorough. I could have, I'd probably still be writing it, to be honest, if they hadn't sort of ripped it out of my computer and put it between hard covers. There's so much to say about Patek that even this book, and it's, I don't know, however many, four or five hundred pages, big pages with lots of illustrations, amazing reference, uh, technical appendices, the lot, over 500 pages. It's still, it's more than scratching the surface, but it's by no means exhaustive. But it, it very much does, I think, really tell this wonderful story of, uh, of this brand that we are now going to talk through its history. And, and I, I don't know how we can do it justice in the, the probably 30 minutes or so that we're, that we're going to chat here. But, um, uh, but l- let's give it a shot. Yes, yes. So, you know, when I look at the, the Patek's uh, history, I, you know, to me there was three phases, the, the founding of the company through to the early part of the 20th century when wristwatches uh, really became the, uh, 
the market. Then we have the period from then up to uh, 1932 when the Stern family yeah. uh, uh, bought the bought the brand and bought the business, and then what's happened since. So way back at the beginning, to clearly very uh, very creative and, and visionary uh, young men, uh, Antoine Norbert de Patek and Jean Adrien Philippe. Well, what's interesting about uh, Patek is, of course, that you're dealing there with the fallout uh, from the post-Napoleonic world, where you've got the Congress of Vienna and all these states get carved up, and the Poles were hoping for a measure of independence they never got. And then a few years later, a revolution broke out. Patek, idealistic young teenage cavalry officer, they get beaten and he marches into exile with the sort of great intelligentsia and elite of the country uh, to sort of find somewhere to be, somewhere to live. And um, he winds up in Switzerland, apprenticed for a while to a painter called Kalam, and, uh, who's a painter of landscapes. And he... Uh, has many works actually in the Geneva Museum and it's fascinating for me to go and look at these paintings and think that you know they were works that perhaps Patek himself had mm. sort of been familiar with and looked at and so forth. Yeah and, um, and then when he met John Adrian and Philippe a couple of years after the original founding. That he, well he'd that founded the, the business and it was sort of dealing with um, Polish emigres but he'd heard of this young man, um, and he went to the, one of the great Paris exhibitions. Yep. And what's interesting about this partnership is that it was a sort of partnership of rivals in a funny sort of way, in that Philippe was quite a tricky man. And there's lots of, I mean, uh, lots of correspondence about how he always feels he's paranoid that Patek's about to kind of steal his glory. So he, there was a big deal about the comma, whether there was mm. a comma in Patek Philippe. So, and, and th this really obsessed him. So, it, I mean, it's amazing how even sort of great men can become obsessed by tiny things because, I mean, there is no doubt that these two changed the watch industry. And yet... Uh, you know, Patek, I suppose, today would be your marketing genius and visionary CEO, not unlike yourself, of course. <laughs> and um, the, the job of devising watches that were yeah, the best they could be, really, was down to Philippe. And I mean, he was, I mean, he's many technical treatises he wrote, but these letters always sort of looking over his shoulder to see that sort of Patek wasn't taking too much of the glory and why hadn't he changed the stationery to reflect the fact that this was a partnership rather than one person yeah. called Patek Philippe and extraordinary. Yes. And of course he lost in the end because when we talk about it today we say Patek. Yes, yes we do and, uh, and uh, you even hear it from Patek themselves. I always try and make sure I say Patek Philippe. But, uh, well, let's I, see if we can do that for the rest of this podcast. Okay, but, um, definitely. Um, and, you know, during that, we talk in other podcasts when we talk about the history of luxury watches, how important the second half of the of the 19th century was in, in Swiss watches. It's really when these pioneering young men um, really developed a, their vision, their skills, their technical skills, their drive, and, and really created the Swiss watch industry, as we know. Well, today. I think what, what of course, uh, you know, you had London and Paris watchmaking had been the centers in the 18th and late 18th and early 19th respectively but by about the middle of the 19th century that had passed to Geneva and surround I mean the, the, there are the, the the explosion in the number of people employed in the watch industry was was extraordinary it's it's it, you can liken it to the Silicon Valley which a generation ago was just orchards and is now uh, the center of the world technologically that's what happened to Geneva and uh, Patek was in there right in the middle of it. And with the business of Patek Philippe, he established a very commanding presence. And that was in great part due to his skillful understanding of exhibiting at these great exhibitions and also traveling, of course, to the major export market of America, yep. which was the sort of very famous Jeremiah of a disaster disaster-ridden trip that he made uh, one one Christmas to America that sort of his hotel room I think it's a uh, there were there, he was robbed when he arrived he sort of wrote home saying about how all the sort of people are held up in the streets daily for their sort of valuables I think his hotel blew up 
um, streets, a street of houses burned down nearby. When he left, his train got derailed. Uh, when he went on a Mississippi boat steamer, it ran aground because it was racing another guy. He was stuck in a snowdrift uh, for several days in his train in, on the prairies. So he had this appalling <coughs> experience of America. But what he saw was that American methods of mass production were able to make parts that were not just series produced, but interchangeable. Yep. And of course, there was still a lot of, everything was hand finished in Switzerland, in Europe, really. But, and, he, and he quite rightly identified this as being an issue for the industry at large, which is, and I think the decision that he took would be, a, would be one of moving in the direction of high quality, moving it as far away from the mass production as possible. But like the quartz crisis 100 years later, this was something that could have destroyed the yep. bulk end of the Swiss watch industry, you know, before it really got into its stride. Yeah, and what was happening at the time was the Waltham company. That's exactly, company. I mean, he went to visit, I think, Waltham and was amazed at the way it was equipped. Yep. I mean, he, he could only sort of look on in wonder that this country on the other side of the world was able to kind of resource a factory like that. Yes, and, and I think with Patek and the other wonderful Swiss brands, what came out of that was a learning uh, they didn't give up on their principles, so hand finishing and, and uh, hand construction, but they did do some common sense developments like uh, common parts and, the, and so on that made them... Well, there were, I mean, you had, you had advances that enabled that, but I mean, it's essentially what you'd had before then was a largely 18th century business model, or if you say, uh, you, you, you would have somebody who would parcel the work out and then go around and collect it and pe farmers in the winter would be sitting up in the mountains putting watches together. Yep. Um, so it was a very antiquated system but what they did very cleverly was also this the Seal of Geneva Yes. Um, and also the observatory competitions yes. which um, essentially established two quality criteria that were unarguable. Yes and um other things that uh, you, you would, would definitely give, probably, a, correct me if I'm wrong, which John Audrey and Philippe for was, I guess, some real clear marketing nous in particular associating the brand with royalty back in that time. Well, there were, I mean, there were a huge number of royal clients. I mean, there was an exhibition once at the Patek Museum, uh, and I wish I could remember all the monarchs there, but... Uh, the King of Siam was a particularly enthusiastic customer. I think he must have dished them out like sweets when I looked at the order book. But uh, there are monarchs that you've never heard of that were a sort of, a, you know, the Serbian royal family. I mean, you name any of those royal families in pre-First World War Europe and the chances are there was a sort of Patek customer lurking there. Yeah. Of course, the most relevant for us was Queen Victoria, yeah. um, who visited the Great Exhibition with her husband and she bought this very delicate enameled watch and he bought this very masculine repeater which disappeared and then uh, in the grand exhibition that Patek held here a couple of years ago the watch was brought in by its owner and it and it was a sort of antiques roadshow moment as my that would have been done far better by my former university uh, contemporary uh, Fiona but um, Patek did a good job anyway uh, of identifying this as the long lost Prince Albert watch so it was a great privilege for me to be Involved, so it, it just made the book a, a sort of stop press thing, but it was there was a real sense of completeness because as well as Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, we had a there was a watch there that had actually been commissioned by Her Majesty the Queen and had graciously lent it to the exhibition, so you you had this real sense of continuity. Yes, and it, and one famous one, of course, the one that went to the Hungarian Countess. Uh, the Countess, whose never name I can never pronounce, because it's all it's all it's all um, consonants, as far as I can work out. But anyway, there's lots of K's and W's and C's and yeah. Z's. Um, at first, uh, one one of the things that we were encouraged to believe was the first wristwatch. Yes, very very ornate and very much. A it was a bracelet, a piece yeah. of jewelry with a watch in it. Yeah, I, I, I'm always. I never know quite when the wristwatch first was invented because if you look back to the court of King James II 
and the first, but I think the second mainly, um, the, you had some pretty outlandish dressers there who were wearing ring watches and God knows what. So yeah. it wouldn't surprise me if somebody had strapped a watch to their wrist before, but it was certainly intended to be worn as a wristwatch or as a watch on the wrist, as yes. a piece of jewellery. But I think women's watches, certainly wristwatches were first of all for women. It was and considered... Um, a feminine affectation. I mean, I'm yep. sure you would have, when you were talking about Rolex, you would have uh, touched upon Hans Wilsdorf's great far-sightedness in promoting the wristwatch uh, compared to. Uh, but his 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 aim was to show that it could be as accurate and as robust as a watch worn in the pocket, yep. but with the convenience and modernity of being worn on the wrist and easily consulted. And he did. Uh, conversely, what for one of the very strange periods in Patek, it wasn't his most effulgent period, the um, Patek was relatively late on the wristwatch uptake. I mean, it sold them, but it, it, it didn't really get behind it. I mean, that said, it did the first perpetual calendar wristwatch in the, in the 20s, I believe, if someone's going to correct me on that. but. Um, it, but that again was a ladies' pendant watch movement yep. that had been modified for wear on the wrist or, ha or cased for for wrist wear. Um, so uh, there, 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 there have been moments of ups and downs in in the in the Patek history. Yes, but but always a very consistent focus on uh, on innovation and uh, and quality, which quality most definitely. Yep. And um, that period of uh, of the explosion of the wristwatch really was very much led by uh, uh, by Rolex, uh, yeah. Cartier, and yeah. uh, and uh, and Omega. If I remember a quote back then of of some gentleman saying that uh, uh, he would never wear, he'd rather wear a skirt than a, a wristlet. Yes, a wristlet watch. Yeah. Although, interestingly, there had been wristlet watches worn in the South African wars by the British Army. In the yeah. Battle of Omdurman, for example, there were several reports of cavalry officers wearing effectively what looked like a leather cup on the wrist yep. with a timepiece inside. And it was the First World War that really showed that the wristwatch was here to stay because it was just much more convenient for people on active service. Yes. Not wearing waistcoats and... Yeah, I mean, or just not having the time. I mean, while you're being shot at, you were not going to drag the damn thing out of your pocket and sort of squint yeah. at it. A, yeah. a quick glance at the wrist is much easier. Yeah, swirl it around in its gold chain. It's yeah, that's not, it, that's it. Listen, listen to the minute repeater, yeah. admire the enameling, <laughs> and then get a bullet through the head, yeah. yes. <laughs> so, rolling ahead uh, into the second phase of, uh, of Patek development, the 1927, the James Ward... Yeah. complication. Well, this for me is one of the most fascinating aspects of Patek, is this period when it reflected the tastes of the new world. I mean, Patek obviously by now in his, in his grave, but they continued to make, I suppose it's in a way like you have rich men today commission ever larger, more elaborate yachts. One of the things that was all the rage amongst the Gilded Age plutocrats was to have complicated wristwatches. And uh, Packard was this great inventor in, in, the, in Ohio, and he, you know, great engineer, and for him these pieces were symbols, they could, he could actually relate to them as pieces of, of micro-mechanical genius. And that the fact that these, the, the, there was the, um, he had a astronomical watch that showed the night sky uh, above his hometown. And this is the famous one. Mm. And, um, you know, he, he was somebody who really marveled at that. I mean, the sad thing was there was another one that played a lullaby his mother had used to sing to him when he was a baby, I, I think. And he got these when he was dying of cancer in hospital, but they were the things that were brought to his bedside when he was dying. So they were among some of the most important objects, presumably, in his life, mm. you know, the, the most significant. And obviously, you know, you can bring a watch into a hospital bedroom, but not necessarily a motor car or a, or a yacht or something. So these were possessions that, I think, again, show the intimate nature of the, of the timepiece and also the amount of emotion that we invest in them. I mean, mm. I'm always trying to impress upon people who don't or haven't been as uh, fortunate as I have in having 
spent so much time looking at the watch industry that it is a it's a cultural activity as much as a commercial one and here you had one of the great uh, business and sort of engineering minds of 20th century America saluting the old world and you know because he could easily have had a mass-produced American watch but he chose instead to have the most exquisite mm -hmm. timepieces money could buy then, of course, you have Henry Graves. It used to be said that there was a great competition between Packard and Graves. Now, and there was a very good book written on this subject uh, called A Grand Complication, but unfortunately, I think it's largely uh, a myth. Oh, really? Uh, in that if you look at the dates, uh, you know, poor old Packard was already expiring in his hospital bed yeah. um, when, while Graves was sort of not getting off the starting blocks with his, with his making of his watches. But I mean, his, his grade, his, his masterpiece was only delivered some years after, after the death of Packard. Yeah. So, um, and also they were two very different people. One was a sort of, Packard we'd remember anyway today because he's, he's an historically interesting figure. Graves would be just another rich East Coast wasp had he not commissioned this incredibly elaborate timepiece. And where did it go? I mean, obviously, we know where it finished up and, and getting uh, uh, auctioned in, the, in Geneva, uh, but where did it go to in between? It went to the Time Museum, didn't it? Um, and then there was the Time Museum sale when that was broken up. I can't remember when that was. Then the watch was sold in the, in the late 80s, or was it? I can't remember, really. But then it was sold more recently again by Sotheby's once more. Yep. Uh, I mean, Sotheby's handled the previous sale as well. Um, and it's gone to an unknown owner now. Yeah, I have a feeling it was, um, it was sold for 11 million before. 11 million, then 20 yep. something. and 20, then 24 million. Yeah, and then... Because I often say it's got 24 complications, so that's a, that's a million for each one. Well, I don't know what they're going to do when they... Do that, that, you remember that... Um, be interesting to see on that basis then what they get for that Vacheron when that comes up for sale. Yes. You know, the one with 56 complications. Yes, or well, we know the price. It's yes. A, it's, a, it's a million bucks a complication. Um, but all of that happening uh, round a very troubled time for the world, the Great Depression uh, that was going on, that, uh, that ultimately led to the, uh, the final sale by the founding families. Well, what also contributed a lot to that was it was a very staid company. So it was quite traditional. If you look at photograph, I mean, any photograph of early 20th century Swiss people is going to be probably rather formal. But this was an exercise in uh, bearded patriarchy beyond belief. I mean, they, were, they looked solid citizens. <laughs> and also they had the trouble with Gondolo. They'd had this amazing relationship with Gondolo, this uh, South American jeweler, where they'd had this incredibly complex but very popular system of semi-higher uh, purchase, semi-lottery way of buying watches, which to, I still can't quite get the hang of it. I mean, when I was writing the book, I worked it out, but you bought, you bought lottery tickets and then you paid for your watch. And then if your lottery ticket came up, you didn't have to pay for the rest of your watch. And then the ones who didn't win had to pay for their watch at the, I don't know. But anyway, it meant that their gondola did huge business with Patek. Patek became... They wrote, a, there was the Patek Waltz was even written in South America. But when the music stopped, um, Patek was left with a bad debt in South mm. America that almost sank the company. Yep. And, uh, and as we said, just led to the family then, then selling out. And then one of their big suppliers, which was the... Uh, Stan Freire, yes. Yep. And uh, that got the, the, the ownership into the, um, into the Stern family, the two brothers, John and Charles. Yep. Yep. I mean, what's interesting about that is that you have two very hard-headed, clear-minded individuals who, I don't know what part sentiment played in it, and I don't know what part just, you know, enlightened self-interest played in it, but they were not about to see this great name disappear, you yep. know, and it's really thanks to the Stern family that Patek has survived and prospered since. Yes, yes, I think, I think for sure, and... And round about that time frame too, one of our, uh, and that, I think the, the product line that probably typifies Patek even uh, today, the Calatrava, because all the way back... The Reference 96 was there. That was the first thing the Stowns brought out. Um, I mean, this was a proper wristwatch. Yes. This wasn't a sort of apology of a, you know, a, a slightly embarrassed addressing of a trend. Yep. It was a proper wristwatch. And I mean, the Reference 96 
the small watch by today's comparison i mean it's i always joke that it's a like a very big aspirin <laughs> but it's for me a gorgeous timepiece uh i i look at it and i yeah it, it takes me I, I mean it's it's so obvious that it's you forget how brilliant it is you yeah. know it's, it's a round watch with two you know with 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 just telling you the time and yet it's perfect yes and and, and following the uh, design direction of uh, of the german bauhaus yeah. system of uh, form fo following a substance i i i happen to be i was just looking at your 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 beautiful calatrava there with the hobnail bezel lovely watch uh, and i mean the calatrava gave birth the reference 96 gave birth to all sorts of just simple time and time only and time and date watches uh, and I mean in many ways this is one of the things that I will, will obviously come to this in a great deal but one of the things I like about Patek is that already at this time other companies were identifying themselves with a certain sector of watchmaking Patek and I mean this is only because I mean and some some brands have become identified with a single model mm. Patek re wanted to remain a proper old-fashioned not old-fashioned but a proper traditional traditional maker of watches that for every requirement so you had simple watches you had wrist pocket um, complications jewelry watches uh, you know the whole gamut of timepieces and later as we know those marvelous dome clocks yes yes of course and it, um, and I think the color travel that, that defines Patek in many ways as well. And the Calatrava Cross, I think, is an interesting... Well, the Calatrava Cross, um, you, they, they, these these emblems, what was the Maltese Cross was taken by Vacheron. Mm. So, um, yes, the, the cross became quite a quite a thing. I think it looks very attractive on the deployant buckle. Are you, on a, are you on a deployant or a pin buckle on that one? Pin buckle. Yeah, the deployant... Old school. Yeah, the deployant, I love, I love that Calatrava Cross on the yeah. deployant buckle. Yes, I, I fortunately own... Uh, um, a blue dial platinum perpetual calendar. Lucky you. I'm desperately trying to remember the uh, uh, the number of it, which I'm never great at the reference. Neither numbers. am I. Fifty nine forty or something. Am I right? Maybe um, I'm wrong. It, it's it's around there somewhere, but but it has a deployment buckle on it, and it is beautiful, and it is a nice feeling. Just it's a great feeling because it just fits the it fits the pad of the thumb as you snap it into place. Yep. It's a, I mean, again, it's something that it's a deployment buckle, but it's also something much more. You know. Yep. Yep. And again, form. Uh, uh, following substance um, then it, uh, rolling right ahead we, we come into the 70s yeah. and then famously the launch of what is, is probably the most desirable range of uh, uh, of Patek today it's all highly probably one of the most desirable watches actually on the market today but well, it's not really on the market at all because you can't find the bloody thing the nope. Nautilus that's of course the Nautilus and uh, uh, designed by Gerald Genter. Designed by Genter in seventy in the well, seventy four or seventy five. I I can't remember which. Comes out in seventy six. Um, and I remember talking to Philip Stern about this watch, and you know he said that he was quite, you know, didn't try to sort of pretend it was pretend anything else. He sort of said that he'd seen what had happened with the Royal Oak. Yep and he'd seen the way that things were going that people were changing their way of life they were taking exercise there was a greater informality about things and sports watches the, the luxury steel sports watch didn't exist as a sector and then suddenly Odemar had come out and sort of thrown this hand grenade into things by making a steel watch that was extremely difficult to machine because of all the surfaces on and different finishes on the bracelet integrated case and bracelet design not the first there was an omega i think in 71 the name of which i forget but a very very early example of integrated case and bracelet design and the the nautilus again was in a way an oxymoron in that it was a steel sports watch that was going to be more expensive than mm. the gold and more difficult to make and i remember when they when they were making them they were stuck such that they had to number all for the for the manufacturing purposes all the case components because they, they wouldn't have had the water resistance had they so each one had to be individually made without interchangeable parts in the early days because they they couldn't just they couldn't assure themselves of the crystal fitting with the with the because mm. it's a funny shaped crystal you've got this strange shaped case 
Um, and then again, you've got all that polishing and brushing and satinating to get to get on with as well. So if you want yourself a headache as a manufacturer, give yourself something like that to make. But, uh, you know, the, the public responds. I mean, the, 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 the demand over the last five years. I remember when Nautilus's or Nautili maybe were so um, were almost put it this way. Had it not been owned by the Stearns, they would have discontinued that product line because it was plainly not as popular as it, it you know it was and that I suppose would be around about the end of the 1990s mm. um, but you know they understood this is their thing about being a full service watchmaker that they you know they'd introduced a steel sports watch and they wanted to they wanted the customer still to have that even if it wasn't a sort of a selling at the rate of hot cakes or hot mince pies at this time of year so it's interesting that by being conservative with a daring design watch they've now found themselves with one of the great smash hits of watchmaking of yep. the 21st century yeah of all time and I, you know I, I would confirm it's if not the most popular certainly one of the most popular uh, designs and sought after products i think actually the number one what's your waiting list for those now well we actually say if you're uh, if you're under 45 you're probably not it's not smart to put your name on the waiting, the waiting list. Over 45, you mean? Yeah. Did I say under? Yes, over. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What's, the, what's the point? Well, it, it's, it's all right for you then, but not for yeah, me. That's yeah. the problem. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> I you know, you want, well, I, I think that you, you could then quote the Patek ad and say, you know, a place on the waiting list is um, something that you merely look after for the next generation. Yes, indeed. You could pass that on and just say, you may have to spend a lot of money. But, but you've uh, got the place on the waiting yeah, list, my son. You're number 20,456. <laughs> Enjoy it when it happens. So, um, and right about that time, you mentioned earlier in chatting the 240Q, which I think was, a, was an amazing... Oh, the 240 is a movement. It took them... I mean, one of the best... One of the great movements, what mechanical movements, made in 77, I think... Um, designed by a man who had been at Universal, took him six months to design, and it is still it, it is still working today. It is a masterpiece. Planetary rotor, slim, but not slim enough to not work, so robust. Power reserve has increased over the years. It's 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 sensational and it's brilliant Patek in that they make something good. And then instead of sort of jumping up and down and shouting about it, they just continue to make it gradually better. Yep, yep. I, it happens to be what uh, what drives my perpetual calendar. Yeah, it would 240Q. be two forty Q. It's yep. a fantastic movement. I mean, yep. it's it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's just for me the essence of what makes Patek brilliant. Yep, it, it's fabulous. It's technically wonderful. It's aesthetically gorgeous, and it's discreet. It just yep. slips under your your cuff very yep. comfortably. So, and a couple of years uh, rolling on, uh, we had the 150th uh, anniversary. We talked about the 24 complications uh, uh, before with um, the Henry Graves watch, but out came a watch with 33 com complications, the famous Calibre 89. The Calibre 89 was an example of Philip Stern's brilliance in that they were thinking of a way to celebrate the firm's 150th anniversary, and it was Max Studer who had been one of the champion regular um, in the old days when they used to regulate watches for observatory com competitions who had suggested they said what should we do and this is something like 1980 they were thinking they were kicking some ideas around or whatever the expression was in those days and um, Max Studer said effectively I paraphrase in to be to, to, to make it sound even more ridiculous let's make a 19th century watch which essentially is what the calibre 89 is it's the ultimate mm. At the time, it was the most complicated portable mechanical timepiece in the world and remained so for many, many years. And also, I think, the most significantly, the most complicated mechanical portable timepiece of the pre-computer-aided design era. This was still designed in the days yeah. of slide rules and drawing boards and God knows what else. CAD was just coming in towards the end of it. But this was essentially... Uh, making a 19th century watch. And bear in mind, 1980, all watches, we were told in those days... It was a matter of time before the mechanical watch would just become a kind of quaint museum piece. Mm. Uh, LED, LCD, and uh, and quartz-regulated uh, analog watches. If you'd listen to the prevailing opinion, the the, the mechanical watch was over, out, mm. done. And here, Philip Stern said, "Okay, he didn't kick the guy out of his office. He said, 
sit down, shut the door, let's talk about this. Yeah. I mean, that's genius. That's genius. You're running this company and you think, I'm going to make the least fashionable watch in the world to celebrate my 150th anniversary. And of course, by the time it came around, it just took the world by storm yep. because it was so right for that time. And it just got people interested in complications. People didn't know what complications were. I mean, you, you just see, you see, see anyone in 19, at the end of 1988 said, how many complications has your watch got? They look at you, if you're mad. And now um, with the caliber 89, suddenly these things were just amazing examples of human ingenuity and craftsmanship. And that watch was one of the most important things, not just to the history of Patek, but to the history of the Swiss mechanical watch industry. Yes, mechanical complications were making a comeback. Patek had introduced the perpetual calendar wristwatch that you have, the 3940, 5940, God knows it is. 1985, they brought that back using the caliber 240Q. Um, and in 1989, they also reintroduced minute repeaters, which again, they'd had to basically do an archaeological job on and you know bring back the minute repeater. I mean, again, a miniature church, church bell on your wrist, who needs that? But actually, <laughs> we found out that every rich man in the world needed one of those. Yeah, well, he never really needed one, but he desperately wants one. Well, that's so, better than needing it. Yes, indeed. And, and so typical of Patek, whenever they decide to do, they, they do so wonderfully yep. well, as they did with the Aquanaut in 97. And then in 99, we're chatting earlier, the introduction of a wonderful women's range of 24. Patek had a, had a history of, in the late, the last five decades of the 20th century, creating a defining watch per decade. You had, in the, in the 60s, you had the Golden Ellipse. In the 70s, you had the Nautilus. In the 80s, you had the Calatrava you're wearing. And in the 90s, we had the 24. That's four decades, isn't it? 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's four decades. That's four decades. Um, your... It, they waited a bit towards the end of the decade to launch it, but it was again perfect watch of the time. It was attractive, wearable, not too big, not too small, dainty, but not not sort of Tidy. fiddly. Yep. You could put diamonds on it if you wanted. Not too expensive, a way of getting into Patek that made sense to. And it, I mean, it sounds very patronizing now, but in those days, women were not supposed to be interested in mechanical watches. They were supposed to basically be interested in sort of glittering stones and pretty things. Mm. I'm interested in glittering stones and pretty things, but I'm also interested in mechanical stuff, so I don't see why women can't be as well. But the prevailing wisdom at the time was that all that most women could take in the way of wristwatches was something that was decorative and told the time. And here was a watch that was like a bridge into the world of Patek, into the world of complications, into the world of fine watchmaking. Mm. And, uh, and again, beautifully simple, discreet, but uh, but very, very attractive, the, the yeah. aesthetic. And then uh, we had the millennium, we had Y2K, the world was coming to an end. Uh, yes, uh, yes, it did come to an end, but I must have missed that. Yes, well, well, you were probably too concentrated on the wonderful creation that was coming out in 2001. The Star the Calibre. The 5002, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got some amazing stuff. I mean, the Star Calibre. Uh, where is it in here? I mean, I think in a way the Star Caliber pocket watch that was made by Philip Stern was was one of the. It's almost mystical. I mean, it's it, it's not. It's it's. I think it's overshadowed still by the Caliber eighty nine, of the Star Caliber, yeah. um, and it was something that he was really looking to the future on that one, and uh, is all making a philosophical point. I mean, bearing in mind that he had called everything right you know the, he'd, he'd called the he'd called the quartz crisis he'd called heritage he'd opened a museum in shortly after the 150th yep. he'd moved to plan les watt when there was not another watch company there and plan les Wear, and now plan les watt is where all the watch companies are yep. and you know i think that the star caliber is is overshadowed by his many other achievements. I mean, I think it's a hugely important. I mean, I, I forget the number of patents there were even on the even on the uh, winding crown. I think there were three patents or something. I mean, I'm going to get it all terribly wrong, but um, it but was the most amazing watch. A, a, another wonderful example of a perfectly timed and executed uh, statement and complications by, uh, by Patek. And then uh, more recently, we're rolling forward 175th anniversary, Grandmaster Chime 2014. Again, 
they'd done the killer pocket watch they'd done the statement thing so there they have something that is something of what we'd never seen before and it's something that Thierry had been asked by a customer to design and why not and then also what I think was in what particularly telling about that watch was the engraving uh, it showed in a way that under Thierry Stern there was a return more to the style of his grandfather who was a more Philip Stern is quite a reserved man um, more of a very cerebral character although he was a champion yachtsman and skier Thierry is a much more easygoing character uh, but is also much more artistic and so forth so he he his big thing has been his father's big thing was mechanical complications and uh, the well, what would you call it the industrial integrity of the business in terms of bringing it to self-sufficiency again street years ahead of the whole manufacture thing uh, Thierry it's about the preservation of these artistic crafts and that is something that when you see the work that goes on at Patek today it, it is like a little renaissance really of all these crafts that you know one would never have seen in a, in a watch even 10 years ago yes and and you know we've we've been privileged we've actually seen and and handled the grandmaster time and it's, yeah. it's interesting there's so much going on with the complications of the watch but nevertheless what you're first attracted to is is a wonderful engraving round the round the case well that's what i think people can get a bit too hung up on is sort of this hamburger watchmaking that was thank it's thankfully now receding in fashion but basically where watchmakers would just pile one relatively irrelevant complication on top of mm. another until they had something that you couldn't really wear and then they sell it to you mm. um, here you have a watch that is incredibly capable able to do stuff that a watch not been able to do before and also you know you were as you quite rightly say the first thing that attracts you to it is not god what a big watch what's it do it's god what a pretty watch yes no, no exactly and, and then what does it do and then yep. <laughs> then you find out uh, and could i ever in my lifetime dream of of, of course not so no. um uh, but yeah, as you rightly say uh, patek have been wonderful uh, uh patek philippe excuse patek me philippe. I, think, I think we've probably both transgressed that, that one a few have. times uh, but Patek Philippe have been wonderful at maintaining these uh, artisanal skills. Uh, yeah. you, you mentioned engraving, enameling too. The well, the miniature enamel painting, of course, was Suzanne Raw. I mean, she yeah. was spotted by Carlo Paluzzi, who was the great mid-century enameler in Geneva. He did all the... I mean, that is the sort of... the Not the Picasso, but say maybe the um, the Rembrandt, if you like, of miniature enamel painting in the 20th century and his star pupil was Suzanne Raw and Henri Stern got to hear of her and Paluzzi sent her along saying effectively I know enamel painting on watches is no longer that special or desirable but I think you should really see this woman and Mrs Suzanne Raw was then given I mean effectively it's like a subsidy to sort of preserve a sort of craft because 30 or 40 years nobody would have would have wanted a, a pocket watch with an enameled representation of an old master or a you know or, or, and then now these things are incredibly I mean you've seen the prices they command yes. at auctions it's tens if not hundreds of thousands and that's because they decide and again you wouldn't have had a, one of the publicly quoted companies being able to justify that to your shareholders because the shareholders would turn around and say what the hell are you preserving this stuff for but because they're privately owned because they're family owned because they're independent they can do what the hell they like yep. and do it for long enough until the rest of us come to like it as well yes and, and just follow their vision they, they own where they are yep. in the market and, and where they go and we follow and, and you and I have had the, the privilege of, of seeing all this uh, firsthand and to see the Gaoche the old Gaoche yep. machines they've uh, they brought back and, and uh, refurbished and they, they used today as they were used. Well, I mean, restoration, look at restoration. Not the sexiest of topics, but they have a library of Louis Kahn's hands from the sort of 1880s, you know. The, the Louis Kahn's revival was the sort of fashion at the time, so you would have, I mean, more, more of these handsets than you could possibly think of. Now, any other company, again, would have tossed this out as old junk. A Patek, 
just so, just in case your 1880s watch is sort of one of the hands is sort of broken they still have it on they still have it on file yeah. and if they don't have the old part they have the old machines with yeah. which to make the replacement so that's the next best thing is if you can't actually have the original part from the 19th century they undertake to make it using the time appropriate tools which is extraordinary i mean look at um, into, look at the um gold bracelets uh, milanay polonay that mm. kind of thing very very unfashionable at the moment i happen to really like them but the trouble is that it makes a watch unsaleable because you have to chop it to fit so once it's set on your wrist size which in my case is like a twig um you know you're you're sort of screwed a bit there but um but they have drawers and drawers and drawers of these polonay milanay bracelets waiting for the time when they will come back mm. because they will waiting for the time when they will come back and they'll people will drag out their grandfather's what you know or whatever it is and then they will be there waiting yes and and as we're saying this this wonderful brand and business will uh, uh, always always seem to get their judgment in these things right and uh, you and I have had the privilege of, of spending time I'm sure you more than I in, in the in the factories and, and seeing this actually happen but I'm sure you would agree if somebody wants to understand both the history of, of Swiss watches and in particular Patek Philippe, their wonderful museum in Geneva. The museum is, 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 is a world-class museum. Uh, it's got, uh, I mean, one of the Breguet sympathetic clocks. It's got uh, perfume pistols with sort of singing birds on it. It's got, I mean, it as and I deliberately, you know, it's got some beautiful Geneva enamel painting. And that's, there's, a, there's, a, there's as much non-Patek stuff as yeah. there is Patek stuff and it is I mean you've got they have many of the books from the Marfels collection that subsequently was bought by uh, JP Morgan you have untold riches and beauties there and if anybody is interested I mean it's where also it's a sort of it's where they got the pilot from is everybody said oh the pilot is not Patek well just go to the museum my friend and you'll see the original watch there you yeah. know it's um it's, it's a wonderful uh, visit and uh, what's also been really wonderful, uh, Nick, is to have, to have uh, sat with you today and uh, heard your uh, view of the history of, uh, of Patek Philippe. You describe it wonderfully. Thank it's, you. Uh, That's kind of you. It's really been a, a pleasure to spend time with you and, and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure for me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Calibre Podcast. As always, please do subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts. We're now available on Spotify as well as all the usual places you listen to your podcasts.